you know, I think a lot of leaders and, and managers don't want to communicate or don't want to give an update, especially now, because we don't know. But even if you say that, I think that that's huge for people just to, to know that you're still struggling or you're struggling with similar questions and issues that they are. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Melissa Daimler. Melissa held roles with Adobe and Twitter and WeWork leading their learning and development efforts globally. And I'm talking to her about culture. Now she works as a consultant, helping organizations, predominantly tech firms in Silicon Valley, operationalize culture. So we refer to her article in Harvard Business Review, and we talk about her model for how to make culture real in the organization and how you take, how you take a value statement and you turn it into a set of behaviors and you make explicit your expectations on staff and behavior and how you overlay that with the performance expectations. And then you've got a culture system that should stop your great people from leaving. Great conversation. Really enjoy talking to Melissa. I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. Hi. So it's great to be here. My name is Melissa Daimler and I work with a number of, of different companies doing consulting primarily around culture helping them really define and operationalize their culture. And that looks different uh, in depending on what the need is. I, I work one-on-one -on -one with leaders in, in coaching them. I can work with teams to help them be more effective on their strategy and their performance. And then, of course, look at the whole organization and, and look at how to define and really operationalize their culture. It's a lot of what I'm doing right now is what I did for 20 plus years inside tech at a, at a number of different companies. And which, which companies were you at for your 20 odd years? So I was at Adobe for a number of years, almost 11 years, which is unheard of here in Silicon Valley. Uh, and then I was at Twitter for four and a half years. That was a great ride as well. Pre-IPO, was there for the IPO, just a lot of good growth that happened there and at Adobe. And then uh, most recently, a couple of years ago, was at WeWork, kind of pre-everything that happened over the last year and a half. <laughs> okay. <laughs> trying to do my best. Okay. And so when you say operationalized culture, does that mean that you're trying to put some ROI, some quantify the benefit for people as well as delivering? Yeah, I mean, I I think similar to you, I for the last 20 years, I've always kind of looked at my role as playing that systems 
thinker, you know, kind of looking at everything from a systems point of view and how do you, how does everything connect? And I did not like when we would, all of a sudden we would have initiatives for doing a training and there was this mandate to kind of, you know, or an opportunity to train leaders on a certain number of skills that weren't connected to anything else that we were doing in the company. So not connected to our values, not connected to how we make decisions. And so, you know, I I really have sought out in my career to, you know, one of the, the main roles I've played is connector and curator. Like, how do you take all the information that's happening, you know, that's relevant for our business in the world? How do you take that into the organization and then figure out based on our values and behaviors, what we need to learn. So stepping back from that, you know, I think so often people define culture as, you know, the way things are done around here, or it's what people do when the, when the manager isn't looking and it's all this fuzzy stuff. And I, I don't think that's what culture is. And I don't think that's what it can be. I actually think it can be something that is more concrete. And so I define it as not just values, but behaviors that you can actually observe. Um, You can see somebody doing them. And then those behaviors need to be integrated into your processes and your practices. So how you interview people, how you onboard them, how you do promotions, how how you give feedback. I have so many leaders who come to me and say, you know, this feedback thing, I have no idea like how to do it. I, I struggle all the time. And then I ask them, well, what are you giving feedback on? And, and then they look at me with a blank face and, you know, not really clear. And so I think if we're clear about and define our expectations of what we want people to do or what we're supposed to do with each other, how we work with each other, then when it comes time to these processes that are normally really challenging, it's just so much more clear because we have more of a playbook on how to work with each other. And so I wrote this article a couple of years ago. It was kind of my treatise after coming out of WeWork because I was, was so surprised and you know still struggling with why people weren't taking advantage of integrating and operationalizing their, their culture more, more than they're doing. And so, you know, a lot of the work I'm doing now and a lot of the work I did primarily at, at Twitter and Adobe was to kind of make sure all of those pieces were connected and that we were consistent in, you know, kind of what we said were our values, how those look day to day, and then what our processes and practices were. Because I guess in the timing of you arriving at each of those organizations, they'd already done the piece of work that says these are our core values. Yeah. So here's here's what's interesting. When I came to Adobe, that was probably, I think there were, it was around 3,000 employees. When I left, it was 11,000. So I mean, still quite a bit of growth in that time. One of the myths, I think, of a culture and defining values is that you never, you do it once and you're done. It's a one and done thing. And I think just like your strategy, maybe you don't look at it as much, but similar to a business strategy, you should be looking at your values and behaviors over time as you grow because things change, things you're iterating on how you're working. And so when I got there, I think we were about 
think the company was almost, it was over 20 years old. And the, the values have been created, really good culture. But I think it was at that time when we were starting to think more about moving into the cloud. Bruce, the CEO, was about to step down. New CEO was shot new. We were just kind of figuring out all these, these new things were happening across the company and decided that it was time to kind of look at our values again. I think the essence of what you're about and, and who you are in the world doesn't quite change, never quite changes. But I think, again, how that shows up is different. You know, so again, you know, everything from, you know, we realized that how we were making decisions was slower than what we needed. We shifted performance management, you know, out of this exercise. So we, we changed, we did a, um, a whole initiative around that. And actually we did another exercise for the values one more time before I left. I think that was five years later and they, those values still stick today. So I, the, the point is you, you need to make sure that as you grow as a company, you're still aligned to what it is you said you were all about. And then with Twitter, that was interesting because I think they had amazing values. You know, there were 10 values that were created, you know, bottom up from an engineer. But when I asked people kind of what they meant and how that looked day to day, people couldn't really tell me. Or, or, rem- or remember all 10. Yeah. Yeah. Tens <laughs> a lot. just a little, tens it's a a little lot. too many. And so what we did, my team did, is we created, we kept the values, but then we we put what we called org skills along with them. So if you were to exemplify this value, here's here's what that looks like in your in our day-to-day work. You know, so communicate in a way that builds trust. One of our org skills was uh, be a team player, and then we had a, a behavior like four behaviors just around what that looked like at Twitter. So it was just a very easy playbook for people to understand. People, you know, and then there were promotions around that. We taught around that. You know, so, you know, anything that we did in, in management or leadership development uh, sessions were, you know, we definitely tied to values and, and org skills and then made it contextual for them. So if we were talking about communication and making decisions, we talked specifically about how we make decisions at Twitter, you know, and what what gets in the way and how how can we do this more effectively? Yes. So I guess it meant that you could, you understood who from a behavioral perspective your best employees were. And did it did it did it help you? I mean, did you normalize behavior and the average went up? Did some people leave as a result? Did it mean that you hired you hired more tightly to uh, you know, your your persona, ideal employee persona? What? Yeah, I think metrics are always tough in this business. <laughs> we definitely, what we did do is we had uh, a 360 that was based on these behaviors. And so we had people kind of were able to launch that anytime. It wasn't an HR initiative. They could pull it whenever they were done with a project or when it felt relevant to them. And so we started seeing some data there, but I, you know, I would say that in even the performance reviews, which we had, we had values in there as well, you know, talk, share how this person either exemplifies the values or is there a particular one that they exemplify more? We would start to see where 
the high performers were definitely uh, delivering results and consistent with you know what we said we wanted with the the uh, org skills and values. And did it did it have any impact on churn, keeping high performers in the business? My thing about people leaving is beyond just there's so much there's normally so much competition here in Silicon Valley. I think if they're clear about what it is they're supposed to be doing, I think I think clarity on my role and my responsibilities, especially in a company that's moving so fast and you in a year you could potentially have three different managers and you know, do I do I know how my work rolls up into the greater kind of vision? And then am I clear about how I'm supposed to behave, like, you know, how I'm supposed to work? So I think that, you know, when people saw those aligned in their in their teams, they were good. But I, I do think if you look at any kind of attrition in general, I think why people leave is because they're not clear about, about their role and what they're doing. They don't have a connection with their manager and they don't have a connection to the greater purpose of the company. Yes. And so do you now, you know, having done that sort of three times and then now having been doing it as a consultant for a while, that way of working out what those behaviors are and getting those sort of snippets of how we expect you to behave how do you how do you create that in a client or how did you create that in when you were doing that inside yeah i mean i think it's um it's really important that it has to be you know a, a bottom up top down approach you know I, I think in those scenarios that i gave you it was that way i mean there was definitely input from the employees and then there needs to be input from the leadership team as well I, I think it has to be, first and foremost, agreed that this is not just another corporate exercise. You know, this is to help. It's not another thing to do. It's to help you be clear about working together. It's supposed to be a playbook to help work be easier. So I work with kind of a, a we do focus groups and then we do we have a core working group of you know key players, key performers at, at different levels. It's cross-functional. And we, we talk through, kind of walk me through what happens on a, on a good day here. Like, what are you doing? What are your colleagues doing? What are some pivotal moments that you've had? What stands out when things aren't going well? What's happening? You know, so you're really getting into kind of, kind of the details. Um, when decisions are blocked, why? Is it because you're not clear on a decision? Is it because you don't know who the decision maker is? So we just kind of walk through a lot of the the day-to-day stuff. Tell me about meetings. And then themes start to emerge. Things start to come out. And I think there's kind of generic values around customer focus and innovation and those kind of things. But I think if you peel it back a little bit more, there's you start to see some nuances that are just relevant for that company. And so you, you pull out those themes and then, you know, it's similar, you know, I was inspired. I know you had Patty on here a while back. Netflix did this, what, 10 years ago? Oh, forever ago. Yeah. Forever ago. But I just, I was so inspired that it wasn't, it was so clear about what it is we wanted in an employee and, and what didn't work. 
And so that's kind of where we get to in this process. So you have values, but you don't you don't stop there. Similar to Netflix, you, we then go into, well, what would that look like? What would some of those behaviors be? And then, you know, it's a lot of iteration. And then you go to, I don't present to the executives, I facilitate it, the employees do. And so they share kind of examples. And it's also, it's a twofer, as I like to call it, because it's a, I go into companies at all different stages, but a lot of them right now that I'm working with are startups who haven't done this process yet. You know, they could be anywhere from one to four years old. One I'm working with is, this is their their second iteration. They've been around for eight years. But I think it's also a great kind of point to see kind of what's what's working and what's not working. You know, some of these themes that are emerging are highlighting what's not working. And so these aren't just behaviors of what we're doing today. They're a mix of what we're doing today and aspirational for what we want this organization to be doing in the future. Yeah. A mix of stop, start and continue. Yeah. Yeah. You talked there about meetings. Is there a, do you, do you have a sort of a theme of bad meetings and how you, uh, you know, you've got a collection of things that you, you like to fix or a, an ideal way to run meetings? Cause I, I often think if I turn up in a company and I only attended a couple of meetings, I could probably get a sense of, of the culture of the business. You know, do people turn up on time or not? Do people sit and do their email or not? Yeah. I think most meetings don't need to happen. I think that's been the best thing out of this crisis. <laughs> I don't think, I think people are on automatic when they, they set up a meeting instead of being uh, much more clear about what is the agenda? Are we making a decision? Is just a, is this a brainstorm meeting? Does everybody need to be here? Like oftentimes when I was at Twitter, I would look at a meeting and I would think, gosh, you know, my team can do this. I don't need to be there. I'll, you know, I will, if, you know, if I have to be there at the end, if there's a decision to be made. But most times I could just delegate or empower them to do it. So I think having a clear agenda, making sure that the right people are in the right meeting. I think most meetings don't need to be an hour. We try to do our meetings for 45 minutes or 50 minutes. Google has that great thing on its calendar now where you can do the 50 minutes and have 10 minutes to kind of reflect and breathe and do your thing before the next one. And get to the next one on time. Yeah. And get to the next one on time. And I, yeah, I think that, you know, everybody needs to be, if everybody was just present and not in their email, we could probably get it done in 30 minutes. And so I think just clean meeting guidelines and practices make a difference. And the other thing that you mentioned, which the question one of the Gallup Q12, I know what's expected of me. So that, that you know, clarity for employees around what their job is and, and what, what the organization or their manager or team leader expects from them. What have you put in place to, to make that a reality? Because that's really hard. Lots of organizations of whatever age and whatever size I see, most of them haven't done that by accident before. Yeah, I mean, I the hard part in a lot of these companies and, you know, Twitter and even Adobe at some level, um, you know, you have ma first time managers, you know, they don't know what they don't know. And so they are struggling themselves and trying to figure out this new role of manager. And so I think the manager is a huge leverage point to kind of make sure they understand how to provide clarity and 
make sure that their employees know what's expected of them. So I think that's that's really important. I think being clear about your overall strategy, I think that's something that a lot of companies right now are just really struggling with just because we don't, you know, we don't know what the next six months, the next three months are going to look like. So what, you know, what is our kind of three month plan or, or one week plan? But I, I think if, if it's just even one week, if it, making sure that people are clear about what it is we're doing as a team, what it is, you know, what is my role contributing to that? And then, you know, what are my kind of individual objectives uh, in a certain time frame? And then I think a lot of the manager's role is to coach, you know, and ask questions and listen and to guide. Um, and I think so often managers, you know, that I used to work with, I, I remember one manager uh, came to me in a panic and, and after we did, we were doing a, it was a coaching session and it was all about asking questions and listening. And we were doing a bunch of exercises and he was so uncomfortable because he said, I, you know, I am so used to being an individual contributor and being the person who is the expert. So now you're telling me that I can't share my expertise and I'm supposed to just listen, even if, even if I have the answer. So it's just this very uncomfortable shift for a lot of people to move into that role. But I think where they do need to be more directive is to the extent possible, being clear about this is our strategy, here's how you fit in, and this is what I expect of you, whether, again, that's weekly, monthly, just so there's some consistent cadence. And, I, and now, again, I think companies, that's even more important. You know, a lot of, I talked to a company this week and the CEO there said, you know, I'm having all my managers meet with their employees one-on-one twice a week now, just because there's much uncertainty. And there are certain things we can control right now. And it's, you know, our relationship with our teams. And so we're doubling down on that and making sure that we're there, even if we don't have the answers. Like, you know, I think a lot of leaders and, and managers don't want to communicate or don't want to give an update, especially now, because we don't know. But even if you say that, I think that that's huge for people just to, to know that you're still struggling or you're struggling with similar questions and issues that they are. Yes. Well, and, and as you say, that it changes so quickly in a week. And there's a, some people struggle with that. Uh, you know, I'm supposed to know all the answers to your point earlier about being a, you know, being the subject matter expert, but then even just having a conversation around the things that we can't control and saying, look, we can't control that. So, you know, is that, is that a thing that we should be worrying about? You know, let's worry about the things we can do something about and not spend all our time, you know, thrashing around about the things we can't. Yeah. Everything's being amplified right now. I think every decision you're making, every action you're taking, every communication you're doing, I think how you're doing that matters. And, you know, I think we have an opportunity right now to be more human. I think there is so much uncertainty I and mean, there's so many more layers than 9-11. And, you know, I was, I was talking to a colleague the other day and it's like, we've been through 9-11, we've been through 2008. I was leading HR for the first time for a startup and the, the bubble, you know, the dot-com bubble and bust. But those were kind of events somewhat finite. And then we knew kind of, what to do. We could move on. I think there's just this layer of uncertainty right now. And so, you know, I think it's to your point, 
so important to talk to employees and even ask them. You know, there's a um, a company here in uh, Seattle, Dan Price with Gravity Payments, um, CEO there, and he basically I don't know if you heard that story, but he pulled together his team to say we got to do something and I don't know what to do. I would love to get your feedback. You know, one of the options is we're cutting salaries and they all rallied and figured out what each person could manage, you know, in their hold. And uh, everybody took a, a pay cut. I think there's 10 or 12 people who actually are not taking a salary at all. So again, going back to kind of humanizing this this whole experience. And even as we're working in our, our businesses, just to kind of be vulnerable and reach out to our employees, I think in a different way than we, we ever have. Oh, I mean, I, I've never been into a company where the employees have complained that the, the management over communicate. And so, you know, if your employees aren't complaining that you're communicating them with enough, then there's a gap and just, just do more and fill the gap. Until people say enough, we've had enough now, stop. What do you think, you know, in the UK, I saw a stat at the weekend that uh, tech job advertising had dropped by 34%, I think, uh, since this thing started. What's been the impact in Silicon Valley? What do you, notoriously difficult to hire people and wages are sky high. What do you think there'll be any movement or is that they're the core jobs in all of the startups or large companies and they'll be fine? Oh, I mean, it's definitely had a huge impact here. I mean, I I think, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've worked with companies who've had to do a pretty significant layoff, uh, 50 to 60% of of their employees. Furloughs are an option, pay cuts. I don't think we're going to turn this around from an economic standpoint for at least another year. So a lot of the companies here have been impacted. Um, On the other hand, I would say there's a lot of companies that are pivoting very quickly, you know, so how do we leverage this time and this, even the space that we have to kind of pause and figure out not how to take advantage of this, but what is the, what is the new reality and how do we play in that? You know, what are, what are going back to some of the cultural components, like how do we, how do we work differently? I think there's a lot of conversations around that space specifically. Like there's um, an events company here and did everything in person, live and in person. And they've been shifting very quickly and they got up on Zoom within a couple of weeks. And now it's funny, I, I took some sessions and some of the exercises and some of the work is I feel more connected virtually than I did, you know, doing some of them in person. So. Huh. And what, what, what's the content? The It's actually um, a woman who uh, does big conference events, like 500 to a thousand people and does figures out how to connect, have connection exercises with people. So getting to know people at a different level or getting to know teams you know, things like different kind of icebreaker exercises. So she's a, she's a facilitator and she tries to, to bring teams together to get to know them a little bit more and is the kind of conference moderator, if you will. So the big conference where you don't just want one 
kind of speaker after speaker after speaker. What are ways that we can connect with each other and get to know each other as people in between? And that's worked better on Zoom than in a conference. Some of, some of the exercises, yeah. I mean, she has the whole breakout thing going on and she's using the whiteboard feature. And I just think it's it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what companies are able to pivot quickly. And, you know, versus, you know, some that I'm working with right now, they're still kind of in that denial phase of change. <laughs> like, I can't believe this happened. We were on such a good run and, you know, not not kind of mobilizing their their organization yet. Yeah, it fe- it fe- it felt last last week that I spoke to uh, probably more than half the people I spoke to last week were on the front foot or getting onto the front foot or working out what they needed to do so that they you know their organization was was geared up to get back to work and 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 hit the ground running. Whereas the week before, again, lots of people were still in that. I don't know. The world keeps turning very quickly and yesterday is very different from yesterday and we don't quite know what to do and we can't plan yet and we're all still mentally stuck yeah and it feels like it's just people's attitude shifted last week certainly in the uk the people i spoke to so what what doesn't go back to normal do you get a sense that there are any things that that stay changed forever as a result of this i hope that we don't ever go back to thinking that work can only be done in an office. You know, I, there are many companies, even with all the, t- even a lot in, in Silicon Valley who did not believe that you should be working at home and, and resisted that quite a bit. And I think we're all, now that we're all forced to work at home and use virtual uh, means to get our work done, I, I think there's going to be more of an integration, just like you saw with learning. You know, I think we went from kind of all live in-person training and then we, we went to the other extreme to, oh my God, it's all online. It should all be online. It should all be virtual. And then we realized, well, that's not great either. You know, how do we have a blend? And so I think hopefully you're going to see companies with more of an integrated approach in where and how we work. I also think companies are shifting in that, um, Jason Fried, I'm a big fan of him. He's a CEO at, at Basecamp, just talked about how his company's always been virtually run. The mistake I think a lot of companies are making is right now, they're kind of plopping everything that you did in the office into the set of expectations for working at home. And that's just, it doesn't work that way. You can't, like, I'm fried by two o'clock if I'm on Zoom calls all day long. In fact, I've been taking more kind of calls right now and and trying to just have some non-face-to-face so I can walk around my home or, you know, do something different. But I just think how we're working and how we're connecting with people is changing. What's interesting about that, though, is I think a lot of people who really hated working in an office or wanted to work at home all the time are realizing there actually are huge advantages to working from an office. And, uh, you know, one of, one of my clients the other day, she said, gosh, you know, I, you know, the 15 minute flyby conversation is now a 30 minute zoom call, you know, so it's, it's actually more work, you know, that we're, we're all at home and I'm, I'm online at seven and I don't get off until nine, you know, it's just, I'm working and kids are in the background or whatever kind of life issues you have. So 
I think a blend of, you know, virtual and in-person office kind of work hopefully will change. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Somebody like 37signals or uh, the guys who built WordPress, you know, these sort of remote from the beginning. My gut feel is you end up hiring people who are happy to work remote. Yeah. And that's not 100% of the population. So, you know, or you are you are deliberately going out and hiring a subset of people for whom that's the perfect environment. Uh, whereas most of a company's employees, probably that's not their natural. They do get value out of being in the office with other people with other humans. Yeah. It was funny. A client said to me recently that he was worried that because they've got a reasonably strict dress code and a bit like, you know, when, when companies start to introduce dress down Friday, of course it meant that Monday to Friday was the ridiculousness of Monday to Friday was exposed. Now, of course, these guys are all working from home in their pajamas or their whatever it is they're working in. And of course it's making no difference to the fact they don't put on a shirt and tie. And so will they, will they not want to come back to the office in a shirt and tie or, you know, whereas before, you know, you could never work from home because your boss didn't trust you. Now we've all worked from home for a month. So how will that go down? Or, or the people who didn't realize how much they hated their commute. Now they're going to go back to the office and they're going to hate it all over again. You know, there's going to be for some, it's going to be really challenging to get people back in to the office and get everybody productive again. Yeah. Uh, you know, or people, uh, somebody was saying the other day that she misses her commute because it was, you know, it's a transition for her to kind of get into the mode and get out of work mode. So there's that too. I had somebody say that to me the other day and because they used to leave for work at seven, they're working from seven. And so they're not being good at blocking out sort of seven till eight to do, listen to a podcast or read a book. They're sort of seven till seven, and then they're straight back into the out of the dining room and into the family. Bang. And it's harder. It's harder to do this all day on Zoom than it is to do all day in the office. It really is. It really is. The other thing I'm I'm hearing is this appreciation, you know, the people that aren't kind of using, you know, they're trying to reconfigure work now at home, like different than how you would be in the office. And one of the things, one of the CEOs I worked with was saying, you know, I appreciate and I'm trying to, to provide kind of the freedom for people to have more space to do what they need to do. You know, there's life stuff, but also just this kind of time for deep work, deeper kind of focused work, especially since so many companies are trying to figure out like, what does this all mean and how can how can we pivot out of this in a positive way and so you know he's blocked out uh, a couple of hours every day to just kind of have focused asynchronous time and i think we have an advantage of doing that at, at home now like i think in the office you just have this i used to do this with my team like on fridays we're no, no meetings like we're just this is i'm a big believer in having kind of space to think and kind of forward some things that we're doing and not just be in reaction mode all the time in meetings. We're not moving anything forward. And so those were usually work at home days, but, you know, we would check in with each other. If we had a question about something we were working on, you know, we could hop on the phone or hop on a video chat. Um, but it was, I, I think that's needed for people instead of just this grind of, email and Slack and texting and Zoom now. Just people are getting 
Right. Well, you you don't get any work done unless you turn up in a meeting and do email in a meeting. You know, then exactly that's where you get your emails done. <laughs> what is if you if you had to pick one thing out of one from Adobe and one from Twitter and one from WeWork? I don't, or maybe maybe it's three from one company. I don't know. I'm just thinking of three things that they did extremely well that you think people should copy. I credit Adobe for a lot of the learning, for just learning how not just to be an HR kind of business partner, to but to be a business partner. You know, I, I, I think we, uh, Donna Morris, who headed up HR there, was always about figuring out what does the business need and how do we partner with them to get it done? And I, I do feel like from a cultural perspective, still today, they have such a strong culture and they, they do a good job of connecting the lines as we talked about before, you know, very clear about who they are externally. In fact, their brand attributes, um, when we did this exercise years ago, they realized what customers were saying were actually similar. We realized employees were saying the same thing. So why don't we just align those? Absolutely. Like, why would you have a different set? I mean, it just, it, you know, I can see you just marketing going, no, we don't like them. We want something else. But then it's better when they're joined up. Yeah. And that's just, that's just who they are. It's a genuine company. I think they walk their talk. I think the leaders that have come out of there are now CEOs at, you know, really great companies. And so, I learned the importance of connecting, you know, the business strategy with the the cultural components of what we were doing day to day. I I think Twitter um, was such a great experience in so many ways. I, I think I still remember a couple of weeks in, I was sitting at my desk and, and Dick, our CEO at the time, came over and he's like, when are we going to talk about that, you know, management development experience? Like, what, what are we doing with that? And it's like, I just got here two weeks ago. And I remember with Janet, our head of HR, and I think he, with him as well, we, I, I literally had like a half a piece of paper with chicken scratches on kind of my thoughts and what I think I should do. There was no time for like a pretty PowerPoint and six months to kind of get it reviewed and all of that stuff that I had at Adobe. So I think, you know, V1 is a good thing. That's what I learned at Twitter. Like just be scrappy and, and get it out there. And this this really nice balance of what I call strategic and scrappy. Like you you have to be kind of forward thinking. Dick talked a lot about that. Like what's around the corner. Always be thinking about what's ahead and be responsive and scrappy to what's in front of you so we can keep things moving forward. So that, that was huge there. Um, again, just with all the change. I think, you know, we work, I learned a lot there. <laughs> I learned the importance of, again, you know, kind of full circle, making sure that if you have values, that they're not just values on a wall, that they're actually um, behaviors that you can see and experience in the daily workings of the company. And if that's not true, don't even have them. Don't bother. Yes. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, is there something you now know that you wish that, you know, at some point in the past you'd, you'd known it then or there? I have realized that a really good day starts the night before. When I end my day and, you know, kind of complete and figure out what I'm doing the next day and my schedule, 
and kind of have everything lined up, my next day is so much better. So I think planning the night before on on what your next day is going to look like is huge. <laughs> and you look back and go, all of those wasted, all of those wasted days. Yeah, all wasted <laughs> nights doing email. <laughs> and what about what what about books you've read along the way that have had an impact on you? This is going to sound odd, but I do you know David White, the poet? He's written a lot about work. He's got a lot of good books out and, and he talks a lot about the importance of just being human in the workplace and that, you know, work is the best learning lab there is. You know, I used to say that all the time that everybody goes to these trainings and these conferences and they try to learn new skills and then they come back and sometimes are just unconscious about all of the good stuff that's coming in to help you become a better leader and a better human. And so I just have always been inspired by, by his work. There's another book. Um, it's called who I think it was out. Of, are you familiar with that one? It was out a while ago by. Yeah. And, and again, it was, it was all about kind of, I liked top grading as in um, kind of how you, how you interview, but who was just about how do you take that, and kind of systematize like who who you want in the in the workplace. Yeah, I can't remember. It. I, it's, it's smart, but Brad wrote top grading, and then his son wrote who. Yeah, and I'm sure there's 20 other ones that I will think of when we. When. <laughs> um, I love Adam Grant. I you know I follow a lot of people on on Twitter. You know, Adam's always has good stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and his uh, he does a. Um, God, he's got a podcast that he, uh, I can't remember who he does it with, but there's a, he does a regular podcast as well, which I've recommended to people before, which is really good. Yeah. Melissa, thank you very much indeed for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it was great to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.